0: How's your wind? This is going to be episode 1C. As it became clear to me that this was going to be uh, two to three hours, seemed like it might make more sense to try to break this into chunks of, I don't know, 25 to 45 or 50 minutes at a time. So that's kind of what we're doing here as we're looking at this. So, so far, we talked about the idea of the context of sport and, and what we talk about when we talk about sport. And we tried to frame this idea that when we think about how we talk about sport, what we're really looking at is something that is going to have a real shaping effect on the conclusions we're going to reach about how to do sport and the evaluations we make about what is and isn't worthwhile in sport. And that the language, right, these vernaculars are different from sport to sport. And that's not a coincidence because different sports operate on different assumptions. And individual endurance sports tend to be kind of marginalized, um, not in an unfair way. I just think they're, it's, the reality is there just isn't the same kind of interest in following and, and consuming and watching endurance sports the way the major team sports franchises are. And those team sports, by the way, and this is slightly off topic, but I think it's just worth articulating um, nonetheless, like those sports are the exception. There are so many sports and games um, and athletic activities out there in the world. And the overwhelming majority of them make like no money, right? They're not lucrative. And the people who do them are, you know, physically exceptional, and, yeah, with the amount of funding and resources, they could probably push that to another level. But, you know, it comes back to the thing we talked about on earlier, you know, like the idea that um, athletes of the 50s and 60s are somehow significantly different um, from athletes today. I don't think that's true. You know, Pavel Nurmi. you know, would he have run 1305? Would he have run 13... 13- 45 for 5,000 meters today? Would he have run 12, you know, 45? We don't really know, but I would tend to think it probably would have been, you know, closer to 1305 to 1245 than to 13, than towards the high end of the 13 minute range. Um, and so when we're looking at this stuff, and we're talking about it, right, uh, we want to try to be contextualizing, right, this concept of perspective, And we could digress and speculate digress and speculate forever about who could have done what in what context. And that's one of the appeals clearly of sports is we like thinking about the what ifs, the possibilities, and that kind of thought experiment, that sort of like sports fantasy realm is something that people find compelling. And I think that's reasonable. I don't think people should, you know, not do that. Um, you know just because it 's intangible and it 's hypothetical and it 's never going to happen, i mean it 's a part of the enjoyment that people get out of this stuff. but you know when we think about that and we think about what could have pavo nervi pavo uh, Nermi, excuse me done in today 's context that 's on one hand an objectively unanswerable question, but I think it 's subjectively answerable in the sense that it clearly would have been different. Because the way Pavel Nermi trained was going to be a product of two basic things. And I think we can say this is true of how all athletes train in all contexts. It's a product of how people talk about sport during that time. And how that athlete chooses to A, act on and incorporate that. And then B, what the athlete chooses to push back on or try to do differently. And that's not to say that whatever they do differently is now somehow going to be um, you know, directly innovative. But it is the case that doing something differently is just as heavily influenced by the conventional contemporary way of talking as is the way of thinking differently. Because if you're thinking differently, you have to think differently in response to something. You can't think differently unless you have something to compare that to in the first place, right? And that's what we're really trying to look at here um, with our first part, the path of discipline, right? We're saying melodramatically. And then uh, the second logical perspective on sport, which is the fuck it point of view. And I think, you know, this idea of screw it, it's not possible, it's not attainable, right? I can't apply that discipline model, that that's this particular kind of thing that isn't for me, right? It's only certain people. Like, I want to athlete, but I lack the capacity to discipline. Um, that's a mentality where, just as if you're Pavel Nurmi or any athlete who is given credit for maybe innovating or coming up with new things you're doing that in conversation in response to, you're, you have to be challenging in some sense, going against the grain and conventional wisdom. Like we said, nobody's experience um, can really exist in a bubble. That's just not possible. We can't be isolated from the influence of other things. Um, that's not what sport is. and That's a part of what makes sport interesting is it's a social space that we get to share um, and navigate and think through over time. And we get to see, when we study the history, that we get to see what those changes look like and how different people respond to that, right? But this first logical approach, right, the first logic, the path of discipline, that when you, you know, right, sacrifice things, you pursue that path of athletic enlightenment, asceticism, you give things up, um, and we say no to temptations, um, that that's ultimately what makes it possible to get there, right, in that we're fighting against our basic human nature, right? And, you know, there's all kinds of world philosophies, Axial age religions, you know, built on this question of, you know, left to our own devices, what will we do? And I talked at the end of the last segment, um, the last episode segment, about, like, this need to feel good. And I think that need to feel good is wired into us. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs you're looking at this psychological model of the idea that we experience motivations to do things, not in an abstract philosophical way per se, although that becomes kind of connected as you move up those needs. But like neurochemically, right, we are experiencing feelings, right, urges to do things to meet needs, right? We have a desire um, to drink water when we're thirsty, and that is just as definable and strong a need as it is to develop a sense of, like, why do I exist? Do I have sense of, some sense of meaning or purpose? And we've responded, you know, positively to that in, in some instances. And then other people decided they just need to, you know, take an army and go conquer Asia Minor um, or what have you. And, you know, maybe not as healthy a response to that Um and maybe that's in one of the benefits of modern societies. we've created all these spaces and opportunities for people to have healthier ways to engage with this. And sport maybe represents an opportunity to do this. But the discipline approach is inherently kind of exclusive. And it justifies its exclusivity by saying that you, know, you have this high percentile um, of people who can't be in the top percentile of performers. And maybe I said that confusingly, right? But like the 99% of the sporting population or the world population can't also be the top 1% of the world population in the sporting population, right? And so then we said, well, that first logic is to say, well, those people apply discipline. And that discipline is sort of a way, a coping mechanism maybe to say that like we can't do or experience the kinds of things that those people Um, are doing. But it's not because maybe we're fundamentally deficient. It's because we lack that discipline. Um, And I think that's okay to find ways to feel good about ourselves. And we don't have to tear ourselves down. So in the pursuit of trying to feel good, I think we are put in a position where uh, sports are not going to be a path that allows most most of us to feel good um, most of the time. And I, it doesn't have to be like that. I, I really don't think it has to be like that. And that's a big thing to try to explore and prove is I think most people can have a very different experience in sport, both in terms of like the sort of intangibles and in terms of like actually their level of performance. I think most people are totally underperforming for reasons that have to do with like, how do they think sport needs to be experienced rather than an actual like lack of ability or sometimes even you know, it might not even be because of a, some sort of fundamental lack of um, appropriate training intervention, although separating those is difficult because the discipline model is also a method of silencing. We talked about methods of silencing earlier, right, where the discipline model basically says that, like, we study these top performers, they do these things, and because they're the only people who do them, and they're such a small percentage of the population— we can define those things as elite things, um, and you know most of you know the population like isn't going to do that, right? And so it's a method of silencing because it discourages us from like questioning the validity of that, because the implication is that like well that is an act of discipline as opposed to the idea that like those athletes are being uh, pushed to apply that discipline as a consequence of the expectations of the environment. Like, you know, for Pavel Nermi to train in that way, you know, is it, is it important, you know, for athletes to exhibit a great amount of like labor and hard work because, you know, society, you know, would otherwise be too frustrated by the notion of people playing the games that they like to play but being able to make a, a lifestyle out of it? And in some rare but certainly noticeable cases, an extremely lucrative. Um, you know, socioeconomically um, mind-bending, mind-bendingly different uh, lifestyle out of that. So I think what we've seen over the last 100 years to 150 years of sport, right, this sort of the long century of modern sport has been that mass participation has increased. And as the mass participation level has gone up, uh, the discipline approach has become increasingly challenged while at the same time it has also seemingly become increasingly vocalized. Because we have this one dynamic or a segment of the population, right, they can't get this to work for them. And that sort of then is being used as proof that the discipline approach somehow is the approach. Because small percentages of people achieve the results. Small percentages of people can follow these disciplined path of discipline criteria or expectation. So that sort of seems to like fit logically. And that the majority of people, like the, the path of being elite, you know, okay, it's about genetics, but it's, you know, it seems like everybody sort of gives that acknowledgement, but then they really are like, yeah, but it's like the discipline. And that might be true. So this is is kind of interesting little detail right here. It might be true that there are a lot more people with the quote-unquote genetics to be really good at something than actually um, are able to be really good at it. But the reason might not be that they're lacking discipline. It could be the discipline itself that's the problem because the discipline path might be something that is so focused on discipline and the sacrifice of everything that goes away from discipline, including feeling good. And so, like, what happens, though, uh, when we'll circle back to that point, because I think that's worth emphasizing um, again later, but what happens when you can't attain that legendary status, even if that legendary status um, is, you know, a bunch of nonsense, um, people still believe it, in it, you know, and that makes us sort of anthropologically real in that cultural sense, People believe in it, it gives it strength, it gives it validity. You know, when we think about um, how do people respond to sport? There's an interesting runner, Alexi Pappas, um, who I don't necessarily consider myself to be particularly knowledgeable off the top of my head about her running career, um, nor would I consider myself to be knowledgeable off the top of my head about Uh, anybody's running career. I think you should always look stuff up and try to check and make sure you have this stuff down. But, you know, I think you gain a really interesting perspective because Alexi Pappas has been willing to talk about some of her experiences Um, and it seems likely that she's probably vocalizing what other people have experienced but the path of discipline sort of prevents you from articulating that because that's, you know, you're going to see how that would be like a lack of you know, athletic toughness to present that. Um, and so for Alexi Pappas as a distance runner from the United States, um, who went to Dartmouth and Oregon, and, you know, professional um, level runner, um, to get to the Olympics, ended up getting a citizenship with Greece and was able to go and compete in the Olympics. And I think that that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think getting to the Olympics, you know, with any citizenship, is a significant achievement. I The point is not to mock or belittle that in any way, shape, or form, um, or to mock or belittle her, her experience at all. I think that it's just illuminating and you know appreciate that people like her are willing to talk about this stuff because it gives us the opportunity to then take that a little bit further and think a little bit more about it. But one of the things that she talks that sort of made been clear about is that after that Olympic experience, there was this sense of like, and I'm Generalizing or simplifying to make the point, but the sense of the Olympics are over, like, what do I do? Right? Like, that was that maybe that self actualizing moment in Maslow's hierarchy. And the sort of completion of that is like, wow, what do I do? Right? And it almost sounds like it was sort of like a depression, right? Maybe not sort of a depression, but genuinely a depressive, you know, response to that experience. And you know there's obviously lots of conversations to be had about you know mental health and 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 how do we respond to that and what's the relation of sport to that but I don't think that this really is a something that really gives a lot of um that really portrays the discipline approach in a great light because you have this athlete right who you know probably applied you know to you know although in many ways you know, Lexi Pappas does not project as being this sort of, like, hyper-disciplined, you know, individual, but I think ultimately in the act of training, you know, applied this discipline-type approach, because that's sort of what you do, and, you know, she talks about working with the coach who was also a former Olympian, and, you know, within that context of, like, uh, you know, inherited understandings within cultural groups, that discipline approach is definitely there, you know, in the um, cultural lifeblood of most of these kinds of athletic spaces. And the discipline approach wants us to, you know, recognize that although, you know, we're miserable and we've sort of given up, you know, separated ourselves from all of these, you know, baser human emotions and immediate gratifications that it's worth it because that's what's going to move us to this point of like transcendence. And so here we have, you know, an Olympic athlete who has gone to the Olympics and now has presumably reached that hero's destination, which maybe they're not, you know, one of the all-time legends, but they've still done a legendary thing, you know, just to make it to the Olympics. in any athletic discipline is obviously a pretty unique experience. Uh, for anybody. It's not like a common thing that, you know, people can't say, oh, I'm going to go and do that and then just sort of do it, right? It's It just is extremely difficult to get to, right? Maybe that difficulty is validity or not. I don't know. Or sorry, if that's uh, maybe that difficulty is valid or not. I don't know. But what we kind of see, I think, via Alexi Papas also, um, you know, more recently, is an example of what i call culture breaking. And what i mean by this is that so like the i think it was the New York City marathon this fall and you know the our you know digital internet media is so fascinating because it just gives us these opportunities to observe things and see people's experiences and perhaps more significantly see how people want us to see their experiences. I think in a kind of way that just hasn't been possible in the past. And so, you know, like for historians of the future, looking at like sort of popular histories, you know, that sort of Howard Zinn's people history of the United States, you know, the next 200 years of that, I think will be able to be written and studied in a very different way. And one of the things that Alexei Pappas has sort of tried to put out there is this like culture breaking attitude, like right? going out and going to running events and sort of being like, I am of the people. And to be of the people seems to be like even I am a, I am this elite runner, you know. And I've done these elite things, I've done these Olympic things, and now I'm going to be out here, and I'm going to be like you know, dressing in a way that is not elite, you know, covering the New York City Marathon course in a way that is not elite, and like I'm going to signify through my actions that you don't have to be focused and you know engaged around the task of being fast, and you know you don't have to push your self to try to do your best possible effort on that day um, to have fun. And if anything, the suggestion seems to be that, wow, like you can do maybe like doing the opposite of that is more fun. And that's that culture breaking piece. And that becomes populist because most of us, obviously, by definition, can't be elite, right? That's the concept of elite. So how do we experience this stuff? And and running in these sport like running is a participation sport. Some sports are, are meaningful and, and culturally significant because of most people watch them and don't participate. And some points sports are more meaningful and significant because people do participate in them, right? And most people don't really watch them. Like most people don't watch running, you know, as a like free time activity. If you really know the sport, you'll watch it, but you just don't see enough of what goes on to make the competition happen. So if you know people and you know how they're trained, you know, it's really interesting to watch those races. But if you don't see the preparation, there's just like it's mean you don't it doesn't mean anything, right? You need to know what people are doing. So when we look at this sort of culture breaking that Alexi Pappas is doing, and you know, not to pin this on anybody, and a lot of other people do that too, but it's just an example. Um, And I think it's interesting because it's sort of something that seems to have become more, you know, sort of represented in her experience following that kind of like questioning of like, okay, I did this Olympic thing, like the path of discipline got me here, but there's nothing here, right? Or nothing that I feel is meaningful enough to feel like there's something here. But when we do that, right, is there this problem where are we like taking away from the dignity and the rigor that other people are hoping to find? you know, because I don't consider myself to be an elite level athlete. So there will be people out, you know, and, and my fitness is variable. I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, I, I don't think there's anything, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, But when we look at that idea, right, there could be people um out there, right, who are taking, you know, the, the course as sort of an absurdity, right? And maybe for me, right? If I'm going to exaggerate, um, you know, maybe I'm running a certain pace and, you know, somebody is out there ahead of me and they're sort of doing this performance art, if you will, on the course. And is that taking away from the dignity of my experience, right? That I'm out here being, you know, intent and I'm looking to have this kind of experience and another person is just you know, dancing back and forth around the course, does that take away from my experience? I don't have an answer to that question per se. I mean, to me, I would say yes. Like, in, and in my case, the, the, the reason why I take away from that experience is just like I would just find it distracting and irritating to kind of have in my space if I was trying to run, you know, as fast as I could or run the best that I could, you know. And and for me, I think this idea of like, I'm not particularly fast, But I want to race a bike. I want to do long races where I can express my version of ability. I want to run. I want to run fast. You know, I I would love to do, even though I'm totally out of touch with actually doing that competition, you know, it would be great if there was more access to track, you know, meets for, you know, post people, any people of any age, post collegiate participation. It's such a bummer that you can't do that. Although, you know, right. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Certainly fortunate compared to other athletes. Um, But this idea of like, there's this class of people who are elite and they get to be really good, right? And then there's sort of everybody else is something that I think you really see a lot represented in marathon running. And it's this dynamic of it's like, um, everybody does it. There's like maybe 30,000 people You know, sometimes some of these races or more, maybe. Um, But I'm special and I'm unique because I did, you know, what that whole population of 30,000 people did. But it also doesn't matter how fast you run, right? It's just supposed to be fun, right? We're just supposed to be out there and have fun. And then gravel racing, which is, I feel, developed over the last 10 years, but it seems like really in the last five years, has really started to accelerate that development, and of course, the irony of gravel—we got to throw a little history here—is that, like you know, at some point in the history of road racing, like the roads were dirt, right? So that sport transitioned through urban planning um, and road maintenance from you know dirt roads to tarmac roads, right? But if you look at the, the timeline of that sport, right, so it's funny now that we say gravel as if. You know, that's any different from what road racing actually was traditionally, but, you know, maybe a somewhat of a digression for this time. Um, but you see this class system of gravel, right? You know, it sort of seems to have moved really aggressively to create this pros-joes divide. And I went and I did the uh, Unbound 200 race this past summer, in Kansas and uh with a couple friends of mine and showed up and one of them, you know, got their entry and they had pro um, you know, labeled on their um their race number. And they were like totally confused. Right. And I mean I was confused too. I'm like, wow, they didn't like communicate this to you or whatever, right? And then you went on the website and they had a list of the pros in the race and she was listed on, under that category, which, on the one hand, you might say, "Oh, that's flattering," but on the other hand, it's funny because this person didn't have a concept of themselves at the time. as "Oh, I'm a professional gravel racer," right? But so they really, but nonetheless, there's somehow some criteria, some filtering process. They identified her as meeting that criterion. Boom! You're, here's another person we can add. So they're trying to evidence that there's these pros, you know. And I happen to have trained with this person. A reasonable amount and it was sort of funny that you know and I don't don't feel nor do I frankly do I want to have a pro thing on my race number that's not my level of interest I just want to do do the race and you know have the and actually race right and just being pro and stuff like that is just not meaningful to me um, but like I'm a Joe right I guess by definition um, and in cycling you see this really interesting distinction of people are obsessed with calling themselves pros because there's no PRs, right? So running is a beautiful sport because you can just like sort through this. And it's like, well, if you can't run blank, then you can't run blank, and that's that. But in cycling, it's much easier for people to sort of like, you know, delude themselves collectively into believing levels of ability. And then you kind of get to that you know, concept of like, well, you know, who can and can't identify as a pro, Right, is pro this objective thing or is pro this form of like, you know, status or privilege? And if it's a form of status or privilege, I'll be kind of at a cultural point where anybody can, you know, lay claim to things that make them feel good because it makes them feel good. Right? So maybe I can maybe I should start promoting myself as a pro. Um, which I I wouldn't actually do that, I'm just being silly. Um, But this culture there, right, is like it's supposed to be fun. And I feel that I'm sort of relegated. To the it's supposed to be fun category, because I'm not fast enough, if you will. Um, but I also think that that's kind of like weird, right? So I don't feel that the people around me are not trying to ride hard. I I you know I feel like that's what's going on, but this like external perception is like if you're outside of the top, you know percentile but you're just out there to have a good time. Right, and that's really it. And I don't know how valid that point of view really is. Like I don't, you know, I'm sure other people probably relate to my experience the sense of like, well, I want to race. Like I like racing and I don't happen to have the circumstance or the capacity, you know, whether through through genetics, whether through training, whether through ignorance, whether through injury, whether through age whether through any number of other things to maybe be in that elite category, maybe through just the fact of statistics, right? Statistically, some of us are going to get bumped out of that, even if we are really good. Um, and so, but there's this pressure, right, of this divide. And it's like very ostracizing, right? And, you know, makes you, it's like a weird, thing. It, doesn't make, it doesn't make me feel very good to want to go to these things. And I want to have the like, what I feel is this experience of the sport of going out and like really applying the fitness fully through the experience of racing. And people would say, well, you can do that, but it's sort of like, okay, but if like nobody else around me is going to race because there's this social pressure to like signify that you're having fun and be chill, like that kind of takes away from that. Right. And then at a certain point it's like, well, why am I even here paying money to do this? Like if nobody else at my level, is going to really actually try to, like, agree to play, right? I may as well go home and play solitaire, right? Go out and ride my bike on my own and and try to, you know, go out and do battle with different KOM lists in the area where I live. And, but like, you see this sort of, like, weird attitude of, you know, this, like, counter-culture, culture-breaking towards the path of discipline stuff, like in, in like this keyword captioning behavior where you have to on your, um, if you use media, right, about sport, which I don't think is bad. You know, I think Strava is pretty cool. Uh, it's definitely add a lot of like, you know, to me, a lot of interest and, and depth to the experience. And it's nice to see what other people are doing, which is kind of, I guess, what we're talking about is that like seeing what other people are doing is meaningful, but it's this thing where it's like you're not allowed to be competitive with people because it's unhealthy, right? And that, you know, you have to signify immediacy, the satisfying experience, um, and you have to say that you realize, like, it doesn't need to be painful, right? And, and and there's this, like, now-ness, right? Nihilism and hedonism, right? There is no God. I can run the course backwards, You know, it's, 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 it's like a bacchanalia, you know, and and like people are literally getting drunk on these courses, you know, they're handing out beers. And when I did the Gravel Worlds on the, uh, the 50K run this year, um, they, you know, at the halfway point, I was bummed out because I was hoping for like orange soda, Um, which is whatever, right? It's nice that people are out there giving stuff out. I'm not, nope. I'm not gonna complain about that per se, but you know something like, well what is here? Well, they have beer and they had shots of fireball whiskey. I mean like, I'm not gonna drink that, and I saw some other people come through and they they' were drinking i said and I said to the person at the checkpoint um I said, well, like, you know what happens if these people you know get like drunk like or like you know Black out. I mean, people are going to be pretty dehydrated, and you're just going through this checkpoint in the middle of summer, and you can just drink whatever you want. And their reaction was pretty dismissive, (laughs) which is fine. They probably thought I was a loser because I wasn't drinking anything, so I just continued on my merry way. My and I found that you could get as absolutely miserable and destroyed um, as is humanly possible, basically without having any alcohol, just by continuing to try to complete the course. and then the next day, and the 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 ride, and the 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 whatever it was called the 150 mile ride, it was like the same thing. You know, there were people, you know, out there drinking on the course, and it's just like, wow. I mean, it's all that's when it's like kind of becomes to me a little bit scary because it's like, you know, people are now commuting around on bicycles at, you know, 15 to 35 miles an hour, depending on what the course is like at any given section. Like, people could really hurt somebody or hurt themselves, but I guess you maybe have to accept the norms of the culture if you want to participate to some extent. Um, but to me, that all feels very rejective. Like, people who take it seriously are doing it wrong, and I feel like, uh, like I'm some sort of like a spy, or that I'm slipping through the system by taking it seriously, but not being fast enough to take it seriously. Right. Um, and that like that somehow it's like people who want to take it seriously are doing it wrong. And you know, I don't I don't blame this on people. I don't think people want me or anybody else to feel badly about taking it seriously. But it's just the case that the perception of others are what make our perceptions of ourselves possible. Like I can't the reality is I can't decide that I'm pro. Right? That's not a concept of personal identity. Just like I can't decide I'm a three fifty-five. Miler. Like, if I insist that I'm a 355 miler, then, you know, I'm, that's, I'm crazy, because I'm not, I'm not that, I've never been anywhere close to that, right, nor have most people. But, you know, culture has the perspective that it's reasonable for us to conform to, you know, certain things and, and not other things. And that has, you know, these interesting effects. You know, so, so what does this mean, right? I think we see this attitude This screw it, this fuck it attitude, um, which is this response to discipline, which to say, well, I can't do it. I can't meet the standards. So I just reject them and I drink the whiskey. You know, and it puts these two ideas in this fighter's pit where they're just circling each other. You have eschewment versus indulgence, right? I need to let go of all of these pleasurable things because that's what will keep me on the path of discipline. this very narrow, specific uh, course on which we're always in, you're always in danger of falling off and, and giving way to lesser things versus indulgence, which is I'm just going to do what I need um, to do to feel happy, to feel good, because that's what matters. And we're culturally primed to accept a dichotomy here. You know, me um, versus the sort of lump sum of otherness, right, is maybe where that comes from and, you know, like, that we are correct, I have my view, and that then there's just the wrong view, right? And we don't need to understand all of those other things because they're wrong, so we can just say there's the other other points of other stuff, you know, it's the other, capital O, right? Anthropological other, and that's just over there, so now we're left with this me and other, and that's two, and that's a dichotomy. Um, and, and this hedonistic approach, then, of sort of rejecting discipline, and hey, we're just out here to have fun, we're out here to have an experience, like it doesn't matter um, what people think. Um, you know, is like both an alternative and not an alternative. So it's an alternative in the sense that it's definitely not the discipline approach, right? So you're still doing these events, you're still moving from the start line to the finish line, you're still doing activity, okay? Um but it's, like, not discipline, right? Because you're not giving these things up, you're going to drink shots during your race. Um, and I saw, when I did the Unbound, actually, at the end of the Unbound, I saw um, a, you know, like, sort of statist uh, rider who may have been doing the Lifetime Grand pre thing, like, taking shots from the side of the road going into town, at the end of the race, as I was, you know, furiously trying to, you know, end my mud gear, whatever chaos of a day that was. Um, that was a little shocking to see that. I mean, not, and just shocking, you know, I mean, it was not what I would have expected, but, you know, maybe, right, that's the problem is my expectation, right? But they were signifying that they were out there to have Fun. So then you have this other thing of sort of like the professional relating to the people, right? And so it was this kind of like an Alexi Pappas in gravel moment, maybe. But there's also this way in which the hedonistic approach is not an alternative. And I think it's not an alternative because like, it's asking you to give up the aspiration of becoming more capable, which, you know, may someone, but that's alternative, right? To You aspiration versus not aspiration, but you no longer make um, a once impossible thing doable, right? You make a potentially hard thing easy by taking it easy. So it's not an alternative because an alternative to me, and I think I would suggest that we could all maybe consider using this an alternative would maybe be truly best defined as something that like gets you to a desired outcome. But through a different means, this hedonistic, nihilistic bacchanalist approach is not then an alternative because it's just saying it doesn't matter what the outcome is. you can do the training and preparation and you just go out there and have have fun and you know don't don't push it right and that 's fine if people want to do that right but we're saying that then there's this like toxicity of like you're pressuring other people. And to like, no, you need to be chill and you need to be having fun, and you can't be you're taking this too seriously and it's like I don't need an intervention because I'm taking it seriously, and the people I know who are into this stuff um, and aren't pro quote unquote pro or aren't world class um, they don't need intervention because they're taking it seriously they like, that's what they want to do, and if anything, I think a lot of them would like to you know go to events and have people around their level who also really want to do battle in these races because You know, for a lot of people, that's what is fun and meaningful. Like, you know, covering five miles is hard if you do it using only one hand and you drag yourself, you know, across, you know, broken glass. But it's easy if you have somebody to put you in a helicopter and fly you from point A to point B, right? So this idea of, like, you know, completing a distance is inherently challenging. Well, that's true you know, at some level, right? And if you're out of shape, right, you might find, you know, running three miles or riding for 90 minutes to be like exhaustive, right? But then you get to a point where just covering that distance anymore isn't an achievement. And so then the goal is to, well, what can I do that's a little bit more? And that fits into that hierarchy of needs that I think that we are wired to feel good. That's something that we want to do. And when we're trying to understand like these two approaches, You know, what are we really left with? Are we left with like a A A-B model that some of us will be disciplined and some of us will not be disciplined? And that's just kind of how it is. But what I would suggest here is that this concept that it's this A-B model is totally a product of culturally self-selected evidence that because sport developed in this kind of like Victorian industrial period where there was like a relatively or a comparatively infantile understanding of sport physiology, which isn't to say that the people studying it were dumb, right? But like the level of progression in that knowledge was, you know, beginning it was rudimentary and you have this like victorian classist issue of you had you know non-social elites participating in sport right and this comes back to the whole you know hurtling over glasses of champagne um you know thing from chariots of fire but you know these non-elites and then you had these you know social elite people who wanted to participate in sport, and so sort of introducing these expectations of like Victorian propriety, you know, in Western culture may have also had an impact on that. And right in Western culture, because that's where we're seeing the industrialism and the emergence of this leisure time. That's why Western culture ha- has had such like a sourcing effect on athletic norms. And so this idea of like discipline and you know comportment um, becomes important, right? And so we have this selective pressure, isn't the selective pressure of competition, it's the selective pressure of social expectation. And the social expectation is to see acts of discipline, right, and to sort of like prove your worth, right, and it's a projection of cultural expectations about identity and about, um, you know, masculinity and about toughness, and that sort of goes into sport. And so that's that method of silencing of that is that it introduces this bias where it's like if you have ways to do this stuff that isn't like that, then there's something wrong with you, right? And then like you don't fit, right? And so you're sort of crossed off the list or you're going to be identified as a problem and that coaches, you know, and and when coaches are allowed to apply their predictive expectations, um, you know, whether that's like, you know, stereotyping athletes based on their uh, height, based on the size of their butt, based on their ankles, based on the length of their feet. all You hear all kinds of stuff, and people still apply this, this idea that there's these certain archetypes that they can see, and they know that that means X, Y, or Z. And, and that's just kind of absurd. I mean, I think you can maybe conclude that there's, I mean, statistically, there's a higher degree of probability if you're seven feet tall that you're in the NBA than if you're like five foot six or You know, there's a higher degree of probability, you know, for certain right predictive body types, like it's very unlikely that somebody who's 130 pounds is gonna be an elite shot putter, right? But those are like glaring glaring things that anybody can quickly recognize. So when we're trying to like make better sense of you know this silence of silencing effect of of discipline. Right, and what that really means is that, like, the selective pressure of coaches and their idea of like discipline is what they need to see as one of the key characteristics means that they're not going to try things that don't fit the model of discipline. Discipline creates a rubric of expectation, and so then people have to apply that, and those are the people who are allowed to apply their methods, and that's what becomes accepted. And one of the radical things I think about uh, Arthur Littier, the New Zealand runners. Is I think that like on the one hand you could say wow, but they were clearly very disciplined. But they also rejected some of this sort of like sacrificial model of pain, right? Of like you have to go out and you have to do these certain like really intensive specific things, and like you know they're really difficult and hard. And you know it's it was a it was obviously it was it was radical to do this stuff if you understand the context because they're training in a totally different way than people were doing, but it's also radical in terms of changing the way to think and talk about sport. Because now it's not about, like, these performative acts of, like, intensity and, like, where you're, like, performing, like, ritualistic sacrifices of soul by, like, torturing yourself with these, like, ext- like finding the most physically disruptive and painful way to train – but instead, they're pulling it back into the state that it has to feel easier because how else could they sustain that kind of work over a long period of time, which was the whole concept of their training strategy. And certainly, I think it's fair to say that other endurance sports like, you know, probably cycling, people were already probably doing a lot of what we consider today to be aerobic volume. And there were other athletes who who had done that, but, you know, literally gets credit for popularizing it. Um, And partly because he worked to popularize it, right? He spent a lot of his, at the end of his sort of career or his life experience trying to go out and and share and talk about these ideas in a way that could be accessible to other people. So when we're looking at history of training and, and what's going on and our expectations of stuff, we need to recognize that this like historical memory of what it means to be an athlete, like isn't accurate. It's just a reflection of what historically we Think the value of discipline is in sport as kind of a morality play for culture, like against nihilism, and there's this and this hedonism. And that's like a long trajectory of struggle between these expectations in our culture and our society. And if we can sort of see that, then we can ask ourselves: you know, when we're doing training, when we're taking training suggestions, or we're coming up with training ideas, like where is this coming from? Why does this seem like a good idea? Is there maybe a different an alternative way to think about this or to engage with this? Because if we can change that point of view, right, then we can maybe like start to like eliminate some things that aren't so great. And that maybe we can recognize also that the fuck it attitude isn't really the right attitude either that that's not a path to feeling better that's sort of a like you know it doesn't work for me so I'm just going to kind of like break it you know because everybody should be able to go out and run hard and if other people want to have a different experience I think that they should be able to do that but there should be a way to do that without also creating experience where the people who like to do the sport but don't need to be elite in order to feel comfortable doing kind of the competitive I want to race to the best of my physical ability like they we should still be able to do that because I think that's where you see self actualization that's a different way to get to that goal because that's reframing that so that's going to be the next part here is talking about how do we reframe that Because drinking shots of whiskey on a course might make you drunk, but that's not what makes you feel good, okay? So feeling good is really tied to self-actualization. It's tied to feelings of self-esteem. And yeah, there's like obviously a commercial benefit to like associating alcohol with sporting events because you can drink and you can like feel better about The fact that you're drinking because, like, even though it's, like, alcohol is probably not, like, the best thing to consume too frequently and, you know, drinking lots of carbohydrates and alcohol is probably also not that great just from, like, a body mass standpoint, right? Um, Well, you're exercising, so this kind of can play into the idea of, oh, like, it cancels itself out. And there's a lot of marketing around that, like, you know, Michelob Ultra, like, to, you know, basically wants you to know that if you really want to be a complete athlete, you need to drink alcohol um but that kind of idea of like what does it mean to feel good so the discipline approach i don't think really lets us feel good and i don't think the hedonism approach i ironically lets us feel good even though it's supposed to be indulging in all the things that feel good but again it you know just because it's good to you doesn't mean it's good for you right and that the value of this stuff you know maybe isn't really found in its hedonistic value And, you know, because the value might be in the fact that, like, when you can perform and you can achieve, and if you can get better, that that's what's meaningful and significant. So next episode, segment, right? This is all one episode broken into segments. Episode 1D, next time, we're going to talk about how systems shape us, right? How does our approach to sport Right, come from these systems, and that these systems are derived from this sort of tension that you have this like desire to steer people into discipline, and that we also now know what discipline is supposed to pull us out of, which is this hedonistic thing. And that we're experiencing now this sort of you know insider outsider, this sort of like elite permission, right, to be serious, and then sort of the other folks, you know, who are, you know, the goal is to just go out there and, and have fun and, and you know, find another way to drink lots of alcohol, right? And, you know, that's fine, I guess, right? You know, is, you know, no absolute moralities probably in the world. So if you want to drink, that's fine. Just don't drink a bunch of whiskey and then take me out on my bike going around a corner because, you know, I didn't sign up for that. So hope you're enjoying what we're talking about. Hope this is thought-provoking, right? Where do you see hedonism out there, right? In your experience, I think is probably something that everybody could think about, right? Where do we see that connection, right? Do we like feel a sense of guilt over doing that? Do we feel that we need to do more to experience discipline? And is that tension and that sense of guilty conscience that maybe comes from that is that affecting our ability to engage with this and Are we, like, is it stopping us from reaching a point of balance?